happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 247 for January 26, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, right here in fabulous Missoula, Montana, uh, the gem of Western Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Director Neifer, I am, well, we got some light snow flurries falling, sadly not enough to probably cancel school. We had multiple kids doing some ritualistic snow dances today at school in the hopes that that would influence the weather, but anyway, it's uh, it's good, and I'm looking forward to next week. Uh, my wife and I are going to get to go to a face-to-face conference, the Ooh. NASA Educators Conference in Houston at the Johnson Space Center. So, uh, yeah, face-to-face professional development. I actually did go to one at uh, the University of Oklahoma in December, which was the first one in, like, you know, well, two years or whatever. So what are we going to do tonight besides talk about the weather? Uh, well, the weather's fun to talk about, but I think we have a standard agenda at hand. Uh, we're going to take a look at headlines from the last couple of weeks in the world of technology and kind of shoot them through the educational lens. You can see all the links, the ones we get to, and the many more we seem to not be getting to lately as our lists get lar- larger and larger at our website, edtechsr.com slash links. But tonight we have Microsoft News, Privacy News, uh, a growing set of tech correction articles, some Google News, uh, some security uh, news, media literacy information, uh, our miscellaneous category, which I like to think of our potent potables Jeopardy category of sorts. And then, of course, we'll end tonight with our Geeks of the Week. And Dr. Fryer, where would you like to direct our attention first tonight? Oh, my goodness. Um... Well, hmm, let's start under privacy. Um, This is from Gizmodo on January 19th. And actually, Brian Krebs also had an article on his Krebs on security on the same day. The Gizmodo headline is IRS will require facial recognition scans to access your taxes online. And it cited the Brian Krebs article, IRS will soon require selfies for online access. And this is one of the things I looked at like, really? Okay, is is this right? But Brian Krebs is is one of the foremost security <clears throat> researchers and journalists in the world. And so he says that um, by this summer, the only way that you'll be able to log in to irs.gov is through a third-party identification online verification, online identity verification service called ID.me. And it will require all users to submit copies of utility bills, identity documents, and a live video feed of their faces via a mobile device. So um, I was surprised to see this and maybe this is a just inevitable thing that's going to happen. I actually think like some other things that are changing quickly, facial recognition is one of those topics that the public as a public, we haven't formed strong opinions about and some of us have read articles about studies showing how, you know, for instance, facial recognition can be really biased um, against darker skinned people and, and minority groups and things like that. <clears throat> but um, I don't know that I or, you know, a, an organized group is going to really fight this. 
it just kind of seems like maybe it's inevitable, but are we just seeding more privacy? I mean, there is a power to the facial biometric identification that is different from a password. So your thoughts. Well, I mean, it's that weird balance, right? Yes, there's privacy issues, but biometrics is a lot more secure uh, than, than other options. And um, I, uh, one of the things I've joked about a little bit as part of my day job um, when I've, I've helped out with the help desk uh, is that people are terrible at passwords. I mean, that people forget them all the time. Um, it's not, uh, it, it, it's not a problem with adults or students. It's both. Uh, we deal with a lot of folks that, that, uh, forget their passwords. And if you're taking the advice of our podcast, which is to have a unique password, um, uh, across every website, um, whether or not, uh, you're using a password manager or not, that increases the complexity of that. And so for me, I think um, biometrics is, is, is the way out of that. But, you know, at the same time, that data has to get stored somewhere for it to be a secure token. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm uh, in part because I know how desperate things are at the IRS right now. If you listen uh, uh, to any uh, mainstream media right now, you know that uh, they're, they're months and months, months behind processing returns, that uh, they're down a lot of staff. Uh, I did hear a stat this morning on NPR that they usually receive 40 million phone calls a year to help out constituents with taxes. Last year was 113 million calls. So the call volume is up pretty substantially. But I guess I would also note in general for the record that um, uh, that it's a surprise to me that they're able to go towards these types of initiatives while uh, struggling to even maintain basics and tax returns. But there is a lot of tax fraud out there. And, uh, you know, if we can introduce security there, maybe balance the privacy and the security features there, it, it could be a real winner. The thing that's interesting is, you know, anytime we get information on any kind of website, or digitized pretty much in any way, but especially when it's online, it's hackable and somebody can, you know, obtain it. So hopefully government is going to have this ID.me. They're going to have some, some really strong security and, and try to prevent a breach. But yeah, I, uh, part of what, I don't know if it was what caused that article. I wrote a blog post actually last night about, uh, what was it? Questioning, our Google, uh, our Google love, um, a friend, uh, a former teacher called whose laptop got stolen this weekend and someone compromised her Gmail account and she was trying to get it back and I tried to reset it and just click something quick and they had already changed a, a reset email and anyway, just, just a nightmare. So yeah, we can't really do anything if the IRS, you know, gets hacked and Hey, if they say we have to scan our faces, you know, I guess we'll, We'll do that. And, you know, where are the protesters now? Are they going to do DNA samples next? No, probably not. But anyway, it's um, it's hopefully going to be a step in the right direction because we certainly do need to move beyond where we are today with password security. Um, there just continues to be a, all kinds of, of issues with identity theft, et cetera. So I, I, I like your analysis. And I think, again, as a reminder to everybody, passwords are a key topic to not only be talking with students about and working on that, um, but also talking with our colleagues and teachers because the old days of, hey, just change your password every, you know, three months or something like that, um, 
we are, we should be so far beyond that in terms of the kinds of specific advice we're giving about passwords and then the policies that we have in our organizations. And then let me do one other quick um, uh, uh, privacy article as well. Uh, the Verge reported on uh, yesterday that Google is abandoning their flock initiative, which was their way of replacing tracking cookies with something um, uh, called topics API. And I'll admit that I've been thinking about this and I'm not entirely certain if this fixes anything in, in my mind from a privacy standpoint. But the idea here is that, Google was looking to replace uh, tracking cookies. These are things that, um, you know, uh, 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 allow Amazon to know that you're looking for tents with 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 web searches and then feed you uh, advertising related tents on, on a Facebook feed, for example. Um, but instead, um, they're looking at doing something called a, a, a topics API. So. Uh, uh, to quote the article from Emma Roth, um, the Topics API, a new system for interest-based advertising. Topics works by pinpointing five of your interests, such as fitness, travel, or transportation based on your web activity as measured by participating sites for one week. And I, I, it's still tracking you to send advertising towards you. So I don't really know how this fixes anything, um, or it maintains any privacy. Um, it also requires some opt-in on behalf of sites that are tracking. Um, but I, I think a real sign that that at least some consumer concern is making a difference in, in the broader debate is the fact that Google walked back the Flock initiative, which was uh, uh, considered by a lot of, of, of privacy and security specialists to be maybe even worse than tracking cookies, depending on, on, on your point of view um, on the world um, for this alternative. Um, have you had a chance to look at any of this topics API stuff, Wes? I haven't, but yeah, it's one of these things we've talked about, and for me, certainly without fully understanding exactly how it worked, but yeah. it seemed like it was just going to play into the, to the, to the benefit of Google in terms of maybe eliminating some third party companies and some data brokers. There's a lot of opacity to the whole cloud of data that is gathered uh, about us. And I saw in the same Verge article, there's a, an article today. Uh, ID me, ID.me does use facial recognition to match against databases. I mean, the whole survey, and we're going to probably talk about this in the tech correction section, the whole surveillance capitalism economic model, you know, is based on this idea of being able to harvest the data of your users. And whether you just, just use that yourself as a company or whether you sell that to third parties or whether you invite third parties, it, it seems like it is a wild west of so many of just crazy amounts of cookies. And you get a sense of that when you turn on your ad blocker, like you block origin, you're like, what, how many things did that block? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's good that we have movement in this space, but this is, this is one area where I just don't, if we don't have as a, as a general society, you know, broad consensus or even opinions about things like facial recognition, what what are people going to say about tracking cookies? I mean, there's a there's a recognition that if you give people a choice on their phone to say, do you want to track or not? Most people will say don't track. And that's a big deal. I think I read, too, isn't it isn't Apple the reason why maybe Google is doing this, too, is has something to do with them needing to to make changes. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't read that, although it wouldn't surprise me because, I mean, uh, even though the the uh, kind of. Uh, don't know the word I'm looking for. The 
the terrible situation that everyone claimed would happen when Apple turned on their their mandatory notification and allow people in the apps to turn off the tracking hasn't come to fruition. Uh, there hasn't been the, um, uh, uh, I'm losing words tonight to describe negative things. Uh, that That's kind of weird. Maybe I'm, I'm well, advertisers and marketing hasn't just gone down the toilet and the economy didn't tank. Thank you. So, yeah. I mean, and the world has not ended and, yeah. and we have, you know, power and electricity still, uh, that hasn't happened from, from all accounts. And it seems like and Google I'm, hasn't gone out of business. I mean, no, you know. it, not at all. As a matter of fact, um, uh, uh, certainly, uh, one could argue that there have been substantial, noticeable changes in, in the way a lot of apps work, and I think for the better, in, in my humble opinion. I think maybe what I had read, too, is about Facebook and, and the impact that it's having, um, that Apple's do not track. It's, it's having a big, a big impact. But, I mean, they're still going to sell ads, but the, the question about targeting and, um, you know, the degree of granularity, I just... Wow, I wonder what what schools are teaching around this. You know, again, I don't know that there is consensus. I know that we understand there's issues, you know, the social dilemma we watched, we talked about. But like, I don't at some point, it seems like there should be some civics curriculum around privacy and around uh, rights and maybe thinking about the future and. But that's legislation that hasn't been passed or written yet. So I don't know. You really maybe you can't put that into a civics curriculum because it's, you know, things that are still being debated today. But I think it is hopefully a good sign that Google responded to the negative pushback. What we probably need is some kind of neutral industry organization, EFF endorsed but I doubt that'll happen for, for Google and Facebook to agree to it. But some, you know, a standards-based approach to this versus a proprietary, hey, we're Google and we're going to, you know, kind of impose our will. So, Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, well, um, should we jump into some correct tech correction stuff? Like we pulled off the, we pulled off the, the band-aid a little bit and might as well rip it all away. Yes, go for it. Well, um, first, um, there was a really interesting article um, uh, it's a little ranty, but it's from the Cheapskates Guide on January 24th, and the article is "The Old Internet Shows Signs of Quietly Coming Back." And, um, you know, uh, Wes and I are longtime internet users. I would imagine we both had AOL accounts in the 90s, and then we had dial-up internet accounts going into the early 2000s, and then Pine email, baby. The dial-up yeah, there you mode. go. <laughs> I forgot about Pine. Um, uh, I imagine we both had, uh, university accounts, uh, email accounts before we had any other kind of email account. And then we had, I would imagine both had DSL accounts was our first kind of broadband internet at home. Um, and then, uh, uh we have a similar background there. And, uh, as many of you know, although maybe some of our younger listeners do not, uh, that was the era of web 1.0. It was the uh, kind of flat internet, um, it, uh, search engines weren't very good in the early days of, of the internet. Um, oftentimes you'd go to an in-service. I taught quite a few of these for the Helena School District back in the day. Um, I, in fact, I, I, I had to, uh, uh, blow off the dust off my CV, 
Um, recently, um, when I applied for uh, uh, the executive directorship at uh, Montana State Virtual School and looked at some of the titles of in-services I taught uh, 25 years ago, uh, Jason Minds the Web was one of them, um, and uh, the Internet for Research, uh, you know, really hot topics back in 1999, and um, what was interesting about that was that you know, you, you really couldn't find stuff. Um, a lot of stuff was hidden because you just couldn't get to it. And so people had home pages. And uh, probably the easiest way to do that was to use a powerful uh, service back then known as GeoCities. There was a uh, you could get a free Internet website, which actually was uh, a more um, uh, 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 interesting that that might sound in, in 2022 because to put up a website on your own wasn't that easy in, in, in 1998. Uh, it was a lot easier not that long after. But, um, this article, uh, talks about the notion of that people are getting tired of the privacy issues with Facebook and social media. And um, they are moving back towards a more flat Internet. And instead of the Internet being read-write, which is the Web 2.0, right, this notion of, of the Internet is, is not just something for you to consume. It's something for you to contribute to easily and, and, and with a simplified interface. Instead, this notion of... Uh, both kind of HTML websites and WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, uh, editors uh, may be making a comeback. Um, I don't really think this is necessarily true, um, in part because I don't know anyone that's said, you know, the heck with it, I'm going back to what I would call the flat internet. But the fact that there are people even talking about this, it, it really is the crux of the text correction. I don't think this fixes anything because if the flat Internet uh, exists, someone's going to find a way to monetize it. Right. That's the that was the the thing that we can't kind of shove that back into Pandora's box. But, um, you know, Wes, are you going to abandon your WordPress site and move back to an HTML based flat Internet site? Well, funny you should mention, because I have had to recently find some tools, and shout out to Alan Levine, who's always a great resource for many different geeky web design and creation tools, um, find something that would take some sites offline so that I could back them up, because I don't want to run a WordPress, you know, SQL database back site for something I'm never going to update again, but yet I'd like to keep it online and and keep it around. So there's a, uh, an app actually called Site Sucker, which you can get for Mac that'll uh, pull down all the images and links and, and everything like that for a website. And I, I was, I was having to find a web page editor because I didn't, didn't want to just code something. And I wanted I, anyway, something that was going to be a homepage on archive. What is it? I mean, make sure I don't misspeak archives.westfriar.com. Um, I don't think it's, going to have a big impact either. But I do think it's a good media and digital literacy question to think about to what degree do we want to have students fluent and familiar with being able to create web pages, being able to, to maintain a website. Um, you know, WordPress is a very, very popular platform, uh, information, you know, content management system, CMS. Um, so anyway, I think that's a, that's a pretty interesting and important question. It's certainly something where it's it's a moving target in terms of, you know, the old HTML writing Dreamweaver of yesterday, you know, has, has, has given way in most cases to, you know, 
web web based content management systems and interoperable or whatever modular themes and plugins and things like that. So I would I would say that yeah, WordPress is going strong and it's not gonna gonna go away. But it certainly is interesting to reminisce about some of those things and you know, it wasn't that long ago that we just we've become the old guys. So Yeah, that that's for the young folks on the show. Right. You handcrafted your HTML (laughs) and we were back in the day and you were listening to your (laughs) connection, you know, your modem make your connection. So Although I do remember this goes back to because I, I guess I did have web hosting maybe as early as I'm trying. I'm just, because I have this really specific memory of working on knifer.com, which was my first classroom homepage. I had a, I did have webs, web hosting services. I don't remember being particularly cheap. um, If my memory serves me correctly, but um, that was 2001 ish. And then I started using, uh, post nuke, which was another, uh, 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 content management system. And then, um, in 2005, a couple of, uh, iterations through, I then, um, um, I, I then moved to, to WordPress. But yeah, that, that's, uh, uh, that, that's a, that's a walk down memory lane. So digital, digital footprints though are important. And how do you stake, you know, plant your flag, say, this is who I am. And to what degree do you want to, to have a digital footprint and also how do you own your content? Uh, how do you safeguard yourself against websites and companies being bought, going the way of posturous, you know, disappearing? Um, we put out a lot of content, some of us on Twitter, on Facebook, but, you know, do we have offline copies of those things? Those are all interesting questions. And I think that it, I've been applying for a few jobs lately in the last, you know, six, six months or so it's, and there's, there are some different schools with digital studies programs. Um, I've actually applied to some of them, even though I don't think that's where I'll end up landing, but um, to, to some degree, everybody needs to have familiarity with these digital tools and, you know, with, with some, some level of content creation and sharing online, obviously people who are going to, you know, work in journalism or, or a cer- certain other professions marketing, they're going to have a lot more, but, Interesting to think about and um, important to think about in terms of that curriculum, right? What should the computer class at school talk about and cover? I've been doing that in middle school. Now this is my third year and it's uh, I find it invigorating because there's something that's always changing. Um, but it's something that, you know, unlike some classes that we've been doing, we've been doing kind of the same thing in algebra one for a while. You know, it's it's just it's a far cry from that kind of a situation with how dy- dynamic the web is. And uh, anyway, I love that kind of stuff. Thinking about literacy, thinking about, you know, tools, thinking about skills. What, what do we need to, to build in for students? Are you an, a common reader of cheapskateguide.org, by the way? No, uh, I'm not. <laughs> in fact, that I picked that up at, um, uh, at Hacker News. Um, oh, okay. and I, in fact, I, it was the name of the website that, that first put me there. <laughs> I read the article and I laughed out loud. I also had plenty of GeoCity sites, too, I want to also point out for the record. So I think that website may still be created with Clara's homepage, you know, just based <laughs> off of my quick scan there. <laughs> well, and then, and then 
you could do Dreamweaver, uh, Microsoft. I'm trying to remember the name of Microsoft's tool for that, but it added a bunch of junk HTML code in there, so it yeah. it sometimes was hard. Oh, to Oh, yeah, front page. Um, yeah, front page. Thank and you. And then yeah, Peggy's reminding us of Netscape, and then they had the Netscape Communicator yeah. suite, which had Netscape Composer. Yep. And uh, anyway, it's as as I've just been looking around for that kind of stuff. You can't. I don't know. It, it can be a bit challenging to find free tools that are our WYSIWYG, you know, web page editors these days. So yep, absolutely. Yeah. Peggy says, yes, Claris works. I, I found a picture. I've got a, a photo, a, a smart photo album from Google that pulls off our family and friends. And there's a picture of 2001. I'm wearing a Claris shirt. I was like, <laughs> that's a, I should, uh, that needs to be a profile picture. All right. Well, what else uh, tech correction shall we dive into? Um, what about that bad science one? I think we've had that one for a couple yeah. weeks. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, let's do it. Um, the BBC uh, had an interesting kind of thought uh, 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 article on January 19th. And uh, first and foremost, this is from uh, Rachel Schrader, who is the health and disinformation reporter for the BBC. So that's a heck of a title. But um, the... Um, the, the the question here, the debate, uh, is whether or not um, bad science should be censored on social media. And it kind of goes through a, um, uh, a, a, a the topic of whether or not you know, we should be regulating social media in a way that we actually, uh, by maybe law or decree, ban bad science. It talks about something that uh, we've talked about here on the podcast. That's the movie Plandemic. Um, which we mentioned early on in the COVID days and um, the uh, talking about maybe changing the logarithms, maybe changing um, uh, uh, or offering fact checking websites. Uh, uh, BBC itself points out that it, it repeatedly fact checks a lot of uh, uh, fast moving claims around the internet in an attempt to do its role as a, a informational organization and then going as far as something we've talked about a lot, which is deplatforming individuals. And um, of course the problem here and the reason why this isn't a simple case of, yep, we're just going to ban a uh, 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 science uh, uh, myths or disinformation is that it's just not that easy because there are a lot of legitimate debates in science that probably uh, 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 could get sucked up into something if, if we draw these lines incorrectly. And the bottom line is that uh, you don't have the right to necessarily spout off uh, incorrect information um, uh, in, in all forums, but you do have a right to be wrong, as it turns out, even if the, the intent of, uh, of of your rhetoric is sinister. The bottom line is, is that uh, it, it's not illegal uh, under free speech or most interpretations of free speech um, um, to, to spout things that are untrue. And remember that uh, truth is a lot of times uh, in the eye of the beholder, and that makes this, this debate somewhat complex. Um, this article also talks about and pulls in some scientists that say um, uh, 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 this was the Royal Society, which is a, um, uh, uh, well, they call themselves the world's oldest continuously operating scientific institution in England, um, actually advises against uh, social media companies removing content that's legal but harmful. And instead, they say that we should be uh, adjusting our logarithms to prevent it from going viral in the first place and also stop people from making money on false claims. So Wes, uh, I, I toss it over to you. Do you have any broad thoughts or, or do you have a suggestion for a line we could draw perhaps to regulate social 
media and disinformation in this way. Thankfully, I have the complete solution to this, and we'll be, de- be declaring my candidacy for the U.S. Senate later next week. No. <laughs> um, wow. I'll respond with a podcast. Kara Swisher's January 6th interview with the new CEO of Parler, and I just dropped that link in. Absolutely fantastic. We talked wow. about the initial interview that she did with the Parler CEO where he, he self-destructed basically, not only for himself, but for his platform. He got deplatformed off of, uh, the app store for Apple and the Google Play store and, you know, over, over the comments about, no, we're just letting stuff go. We're not going to moderate. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to take action. People can say whatever they want. Um, that conversation, uh, as well as this this newer one by Kara Swisher, is completely fascinating because it's talking a lot about that sort of issue. To what degree should platforms censor speech? Um, like, like even it's not censorship in this in the sense of removing it, but when Facebook or Twitter will put in a link, you've mentioned something about COVID, so here's a link to the CDC. Um, but they they are, you know, we talked about Marjorie Greene, uh, U.S. representative, having one of her accounts um, because of being, I think, misinformation about vaccines. It's an absolutely fascinating topic because it's it's beyond just the free speech thing. Right. Part of that free speech conversation is, hey, the you know First Amendment limits the government. You know, it doesn't limit what private companies and individuals can do. But this question of, you know, responsibility, what responsibility does Apple have to, you know, let's say, keep keep their app store uh, safe for kids or, or family friendly to keep malware off of it? There's that side with security and and quote unquote objectionable content. But then what about the content you just flat out you, you know, somebody disagrees with? And I actually think the new parlor CEO has some pretty good things to say about that, because. When individuals like the CEOs of companies or groups are going to decide, all right, this opinion, this line of of reasoning, um, this is not acceptable. Like, man, I think that's it's really, really challenging and difficult. And so back to what we were just talking about with the old web it was kind of easier with the old web with, and I'm not saying I don't love web 2.0. I I do as far as commenting, but when we were all, we were all, when, when early adopters were having our own blogs and podcasts and, and it wasn't just like shared on Facebook or Twitter where you had a central arbiter of content, but like you could and still can be sued for libel or slander. Um, I don't know. We, we didn't have a middleman, so to speak, a company in the middle that was a mediator that yeah, was, it was having to mediate that, that information. And I think what I continue to hear, and, and there's a, I don't think our, I'm putting this as my geek of the week, but there was a great, um, well, it was an interview. I think I mentioned last week about Roblox on uh tech won't save us podcast, the metaverse, which Roblox is this manifestation of the metaverse. It doesn't look like it can be effectively moderated. Facebook, it doesn't look like it can be a hundred. No, no social network can be a hundred percent moderated. So they're struggling to deal with content which is egregiously in violation of community guidelines and standards and all that kind of stuff. And then when you step into this arena, it seems to be even even greater and murkier. So I don't. 
yeah, I, I don't think there is a an answer to it. But companies do have the right to moderate and quote unquote censor. Uh, I just think this is going to continue to be a persistent issue because there's not a clear solution that, you know, uh, appears to be available for anyone. And and because hands off is not a solution because you're going to have no. to have some level of of moderation and, and you know, showing that you're ma- having a good faith effort to try to, you know, keep horrible, horrible content and illegal content off of your platform. But there's not at this point going to be an expectation that you completely do that. So unless we would have some legislation, which maybe we can mention some of these other articles that is going to, let's say, do away with section 230 protections and open up these companies to liability. Um, anyway, and until you have some kind of regulatory change, I don't, and I don't know that we're going to have that regulatory change. So I don't think things like this are going to become resolved anytime soon. Sorry to be pessimistic. That's okay. Well, and, you know, maybe to pick up on a familiar theme, too, this seems like a pretty great class discussion, too, right? Oh, absolutely. I'd imagine your students are bringing some pretty strong opinions about this into the classroom. Maybe they themselves um, are are pro or anti-censorship on these platforms, but, you know, talking about what that means in context of their own uh, points of view. Um, You know, remembering you don't have an unlimited right of free speech on a private platform, that that's another example of something that I think is an important lesson to learn that the, the, you know, free speech, uh, American free speech laws are certainly unique in, in, in their construction, but they're not unlimited by, by any stretch of the imagination. There's lots of ways you don't have guaranteed speech. So I certainly encourage you to, um, uh, um, uh, to have conversations with your students about exactly this. In our chat room, Peggy George is observing that Kara Swisher's uh, interview with that new parlor CEO was fantastic. And that's just a great podcast. That's become one of my my yeah. favorite podcasts to, to listen to periodically. Here's another article from the uh, Tech Correction um, uh, sub subtitle or whatever uh, category. Uh, ON <laughs> panics as DirecTV. <laughs> We're just struggling with the words, man. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all part of getting over 50, guys. This is all happening. <laughs> ON panics as DirecTV drops network asked, asks viewers to, quote, find dirt on AT&T chairman. This was Ars Technica on January the 20th. So this is fascinating, right? So not too long ago when we had a different president uh, who got angry at Fox News and told people to, you know, watch a different network in this ON network. Um, the article alleges there was some kind of gentleman's agreement with AT, with uh, AT&T's DirecTV or AT&T owned DirecTV um, that they would, would carry this one American news network. Um, you know, there's just talk about egregiously bad journalism, right? I mean, someone getting on and, and encouraging all the viewers to call in with any dirt you have on this, you know, fortune 20, probably what's AT&T, uh, you know, h- huge company, um, quote, ON host Dan Ball on Monday night urged viewers to, quote, dig up dirt on AT&T board chairman William Kennard, a Democrat who was the Federal Communications Commission chairman during the Clinton administration. Um, Ball told viewers that ON is, quote, now at war with AT&T. And he said, if you have any dirt on Mr. Kennard, I'd love to see it and put it on this program. You bring me concrete evidence of whatever it may be, cheating on his taxes, cheating on his wife, saying racial slurs against white people. Um, whatever it may be, find it for me, bring it and we will air it. (laughs) So man, you just talk about slanderous and just, I do not think that is an example of quality journalism, no matter what your 
political leanings might be. So I say kudos to AT&T that has, has sold off some of its stake in DirecTV and is stepping back from, from that and from UVerse. And they've really pivoted uh, in terms of what they're doing strategically as a company, having worked for them for two years. I'm always interested in that. Um, so I think that's a, that's a good headline. But it also is tied to the same idea about, you know, how do companies draw the line and, 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 and how, how does all this work in terms of deciding what content to endorse? I think one of the lessons learned, and maybe this is something to share with kids, voices matter, right? When people speak up, when there's organized opposition to things, look at Google stepping back from that flock, flack, whatever, you know, standard. Um, I think we need to encourage civic involvement and appropriate, hopefully, you know, nonviolent participation in the, in the, the civics, civic process of, you know, sharing our opinions, advocating for, for change, uh, et cetera. So kudos to AT&T. Sorry that the CEO is facing such crazy, you know, calls for, for action like, like that. That was kind of a surprise. Anything else on the tech correction front? There's only, um, there's only like 20 more. Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and some of the stuff is, is getting a little dated. Um, you know, we, we've alluded to this a couple of times, but there are, there is a lot of, of, of uh, legislation being kicked around, uh, in Congress right now regarding, uh, uh, well, legal tech correction issues, right? Ways to regulate, perhaps to draw some better lines here. Um, I'm going to wait till there's something that actually uh, we've probably talked about in introduced legislation 25 times in, in the last five years. What I'll mention though, and I don't know that we have these articles, but both Google and Apple have come out with articles in the last week saying, Oh my gosh, if you regulate this, you know, this will break the internet. This is going to break innovation. This is going to destroy the app store, right. things like that. Um, now, some of the legislation has been worded in pretty vague terms. Uh, so anyway, it's it, it all remains to be seen if this is just grandstanding or if we're actually going to see some kind of substantive uh, legislation that's going to address this. But there's certainly more smoke around this than perhaps we've seen in a while. And I don't know. We, 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 we have the, the lobbyists are doing well in all of this because they're hard at work trying to work both sides of these issues. Yeah. And, and maybe to put a finer point on that, there was an article in 9to5Google Google on January 18th from Abner Lee that talks about Google's response. You mentioned that, that, that Google and Apple both have, have, have sent out, uh, uh, um, alarms related to this, but it was things like, uh, uh, Google mentions it will degrade security and privacy. It, uh, um, uh, Chrome and Gmail might not be able to automatically include, um, uh, uh, notices regarding, uh, perhaps, uh, emails that are not, uh, not safe, for example, um, uh, and it has to do with favoring their own products and things like that, right. too, and the integration of products. So there's, in addition to the free speech issues, it's an overlay with this idea of monopoli- monopolist or, or oligo- oligopolies or whatever, just, you know, using market power unfairly to favor your own products and prevent or harm other third companies from being able to do that. And so right. certainly, you know, Google yeah. doesn't want that to happen. 
And, and as an example, Google Maps would not be able to show you integrated high quality results when some other companies might offer competing answers, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, and, and, and I'll admit, I mean, the integrated nature of both Apple and Google's are, uh, systems uh, make them very attractive. I like that um, in both the Apple world and Google world. But bottom line is, is that, um, you know, it, it does come at a cost. Absolutely. Well, um, let's skip down. Let's do a positive. I've, I put this under miscellaneous. We had a whole, we have like six miscellaneous articles. Uh, the Webb Space Telescope. Um, this was in Ars Technica yesterday on January 25th by Eric Berger. Um, this is a bit of it's kind of an editorial, but it's a news because the Webb Space Telescope got to the Lagrange two point, which is its destination, like a million plus miles away or whatever. And his, his headline is to my surprise and elation, the Webb Space Telescope is really going to work. And I have shared this with my fifth and sixth graders. We've watched movies or, you know, videos and like the, the num there was like 300 different tasks that had to be performed that were single point of failure tasks. And part of what Eric says in this article was he had heard scientists and engineers express just disbelief if it could happen, if it could work and that it would be a tremendous setback for science and space exploration because we've spent $10 billion and spent 25 years getting this thing in space. And so right now it's really just a matter of, um, of a, I think we're actually adjusting mirrors and things like that. And by the summer, it's going to, it's going to start functioning. If you haven't watched some of the videos about it, it is mind blowing and share it with your kids. It amazes me how little our kids are exposed to current events. Um, just, it depends on the teacher and depends on the class, but this really is a wonderful triumph of technology and science and, and NASA and the United States and in, in engineering and so many different wonderful things. And so that's yay. A real positive and amidst, you know, rumors of war in the Ukraine and rumors of cyber attack and all kinds of other things that are in the news. We may not hear about that, but that this is a real, you know, yay, yay science kind of moment, which not everybody agrees with, but I think it's great. <laughs> Let's what see. Else? Uh, why don't you talk about that, that NFT uh, art sale uh, uh, article? Okay. That's fascinating. Okay. This is fascinating. And it also ties to what's happening on Roblox too. So this is an NBC news article from January 10th. NFT art sales are booming just without some artist permission. Um, on Roblox, a lot of the ways that folks are making money is they'll, they'll design clothing and different articles and things you can wear and have to impress your friends. But sometimes kids will make these and then an older creator with more means will actually grab it, steal it. There you can advertise inside the platform and then they're, they, they basically are stealing the intellectual property of kids and then they're profiting inside the, the system for it. This is kind of happening with NFT art sales. Uh, we've talked about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. It's really weird. It doesn't even seem like, you know, kind of like cryptocurrency. It's like, how does this work? But you can buy the digital rights that are saved inside a blockchain, you know, code sequence showing that you own, you know, this highlight clip of a wide receiver catching a pass or this particular piece of art. But one of the problems is that folks are stealing their work and then selling it. Um, you know, here's a quote. Art theft is nothing new. We're just seeing it at a completely new scale with everything that's happened with NFTs. Um, artists have to take 
matters into their own hands to get their work taken down. So like we've heard about with copyright and other things, and you know, YouTube has algorithms to try to protect musical artists as well as creators to identify, Hey, you used a clip of this and you know, it wasn't, you know, do you want to have them take this down? And do you want to contest it? Is it fair use? There's all these things finding this stuff on the internet. Where is your artwork? Not only, not just being displayed and used, but actually being sold, and then you're not getting the money. I think it's another sign of the whole freaking wild west of the internet. Um, which, by the way, you know, cryptocurrency investor, have you taken the hit here in the last couple of weeks? I guess. Because um, anyway, I, I think cryptocurrency as well as NFTs are just really a wild west side of of the internet. And I mean, again, it could that could be a topic of discussion. We also see things like there's nothing new under the sun. How long have we been having stolen art, you know, being being sold, you know, by folks that, that didn't have the right to sell it. But we're seeing that digitally. So it is pretty fascinating. You're not an NFT owner, are you? I'm not an NFT owner. I do own uh, a couple of varieties of cryptocurrency. And to answer your question, yes, um, uh, I've been kicked uh, very aggressively in the stomach Um in the last several weeks there. But as a reminder, I didn't buy this. Like I, I bought a little bit of Dogecoin that became a whole worth a whole lot of money. And now it's worth still a lot more than I paid for it. So that, that, that's going to have to be where that goes. And I, I don't plan on selling it, uh, uh, anytime in the near future, it, you know, on the odd chance that in the future, Doge is the coin. So, and your, your entire 501k is not, wrapped in dogecoin no no in fact it's about as traditional as it gets so yeah there you go all right um let's see do you want to go up we've got we've got some uh google and microsoft stuff you want to yeah let me do a microsoft article that was left over from last week because i think it's an important thing to talk about with schools the verge reports on january 18th that well microsoft's going to try it again they're going to try once more to create a chromebook competitor and uh, they used to call them Chromebook killers, except that the first several attempts at this were so inept that they end up canceling the program. But uh, they, they've adopted a past name. It's Windows 11 SE, um, which uh, uh, kind of reminds me of, of uh, Windows 98 SE, second edition. Um, but the speaking of, you know, old guys talking about tech, but the the interesting thing about this new attempt is that and, and they, they have hardware partners, Acer, um, uh, uh, Asus, Dell, Dynabook, Lenovo, HP, uh, JPIK, which I think is a Korean company that, that makes laptops. And um, they've all created these Windows 11 SE laptops um, with uh, uh, a couple of other vendors that, that have them in the pipelines. And um, the operating system will only be available on low-cost devices, and you can only buy it if you are a school or education customer. And it's designed to be kind of Chromebook-like in nature, and it's optimized around Microsoft Edge, Office, and Microsoft Cloud services. The only thing that's also interesting, though, is that um, there is an authorized set of apps that IT managers can install, which happens to include Zoom and the Chrome browser. So it does allow for some alternatives there. But I guess the thing I keep saying is that the reason why I think this is not a super great strategy is because I think it misunderstands the power of the Chromebook. Uh, yes, uh, 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 making it browser-driven is certainly... Um, 
uh, desirable, uh, I think, uh, you know, because it does it, it increase the simplicity of the device. But the reason why the Chrome operating system works so well is because it is a substantially scaled back version of Linux that doesn't have a whole lot going for it other than the browser itself. Whereas, yes, you can install Chrome on Windows 11 SE, but then you're running the operating system, which I'm assuming that even without the cruft of a standard Windows 11 install, probably has a lot of stuff going on that naturally slows things down. And then um, uh, uh, you put on top of that Chrome. Well, on, on the Chrome OS operating system, there's a relatively thin operating system layer that's based on Linux and then really just the browser. And I think that's a really important point of puppy. Um, really important part of the reason why Chromebooks are, are, are so powerful. The other thing I don't get either is that, you know, one of the things I like about a Chromebook is I can log into it and it restores my, uh, basically my version of the operating system with all the, the uh, bookmarks and passwords saved and um, uh, apps that will reinstall for me. Um, and it takes me 10 minutes to get back to a usable functional machine. This actually has happened to me before uh, at a conference when my main laptop crapped out on me and I bought the cheapest Chromebook I could uh, I could find. I believe it was uh, at a Target of all places and was able to get through my presentations um, you know, it was like $129 and, you know, and it also That's made awesome. a story to tell yeah. at the conference too, right? That's right. That's and right. so that's the part that, that I'm not sure, I'm not sure this answers, but Microsoft is trying to get. Yeah. Well, I just helped a student today, um, power wash her device and it, it not only amazes me every time we have to restart and it happens in like, you know, less than 10 seconds, but the fact that we can restore and in short order, everything is back and they just, they just work so, so well. So yeah, yeah I wouldn't, wouldn't see this taking the, uh, the world by storm. I, at some point, I don't know, maybe in the not too distant future, I will be a little more focused on educational research. And I'm, I'm really curious to know where schools are um, across the country, you know, by state and region. My perception is that, that Chrome has just taken over um, and, and Chrome OS, but um, you know, there, we need competition. We don't need to just have a single solution and I'm glad to see Microsoft still, still trying. So keep fighting the fight. You know, Apple is too with, with, I think more iPads than the laptops that we saw some schools yeah. with, with Apple laptops. So yeah. yeah, flash, flashback to SE. Hopefully we're not going to have, I don't know. There's a, whatever the different, different windows acronyms. I, <laughs> when are we going to see what, <laughs> Windows, though, abandon their core OS and really go for something new. You know, Apple did this years ago when they embraced OS X and the Linux core is one of the biggest changes that Steve Jobs made to any to either Pixar or Apple and any any of his work. That was a huge, momentous shift. So I wonder at what point, you know, Google is working on some different operating systems. I don't yep. forget the you acronyms sure. for those. Yep. And so, you know, when will when will my, will Windows do that, abandon that? old code base uh, to something more secure. Um, that is, I think, the trajectory of where we're going because of security. But yep. maybe not Maybe not soon. Well, let me cover a couple quick Google articles here, and I see we're pretty close to the top of the hour. Uh, one of them, which is, I think, really exciting news as a Chrome OS user, uh, 9to5 Google reported on January 24th that 
Uh, Google is looking to add adaptive charging to extend the Chromebook uh, long-term battery life, and it's coming soon to Chrome operating systems. And if you are an iPhone user, you know exactly what we're talking about. Well, you may know exactly what, what we're talking about. Um, one thing I've noticed is that if I happen to wake up in the middle of the night and grab my phone, I'll sometimes notice a, a notification saying that it's paused charging because it does not want my phone to stick on hundred uh, percent after it's charged. And even with a slow charger, and I use a, a kind of an ancient charger on my nightstand um, because it doesn't need to charge very fast. Um, even with a slow charger, you can charge an entire iPhone in just a couple of hours. So it then spends, you know, most of the night being at a hundred percent. And so what uh, a, a setting change does in the battery settings of your phone is that it will do adaptive charging, which it'll get used to your schedule, it'll figure out when you usually are taking it off of a charger, and it will wait till about 45 minutes before that time to finish charging up your device so it doesn't stay at 100% the whole time. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, I've also noticed that in, in the M1 MacBook, that it will, if it's, if it's used to being plugged in, it actually won't charge up to 100%. It'll charge to somewhere around 80%, uh, 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 percent and just leave that be, which I think is, is a good strategy for helping maintain battery life. And it's nice to see those advanced operating system functions come to Chrome OS. We've talked before about how essential improvements in battery technology are to all kinds of, of technologies, not only school, educational technology, but consumer, commercial, cars, all these things. But seeing the application of smart algorithms that make the existing technology, you know, function even better is pretty cool. So smart engineers are obviously having success with that. I've noticed that too with my, with my charging. By the way, this is, this is is a quick side question. Do you use a sleep tracking app? I do. Um, I use, uh, do, 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 can't remember the name. Do you keep your, you keep your phone on at night when you do it? Um, um, no, I, the, it tracks me via my watch because I do wear my watch at night. Okay. So you do. So you do. And then you just take it off for part of the morning then, or when do you charge? I charge when I'm showering in the morning. And that's Uh, enough? Uh, well, yeah, and I'm, I'm a, uh, <laughs> I'm a long shower. You're a long shower. Yeah, yes. Yes. That, that's the reason why that works out for me is that I, I'm a notoriously long shower, uh, much to the chagrin of my family, but Sleepwatch is, is the, the app that I use and actually provides a lot of useful data. All right. Well, there you go, folks. You never know what you're going to learn about Jason and Wes when you <laughs> stick with us on the show. All right. What else do we want to cover? Yeah. A couple other quick Google. ones. Another nine to five Google article. This one from January 19th. Uh, Google is ending legacy free G Suite. And, uh, this did impact me on a couple of, of, of websites. Um, um, uh, uh, but basically you used to be able to utilize Google on a domain you own without paying for it. And it was, uh, an experiment that started around, I think it was 2005, 2006, 2007-ish. And it was a pretty cool way to, you know, do email for free, essentially. You could do email, you could add Google Sites. Uh, for a while, Knifer.com, I believe, was, was, was run by, by that. Uh, and I was utilizing, 
uh, that as an email platform as well with the Knifer.com backing. Um, but they've finally decided to get rid of that. And it, it's led to a lot of, of kind of complaining on the web. A lot of people were running small businesses in this way. Um, but now that they have a, a you know, a, a more detailed, uh, uh, G suite, uh, for business or workplace, I guess, is probably the, the, the better place to call that now because that's the, the brand name they're utilizing. Uh, they're moving away from that. Um, I will say that that uh, there's been some evidence, and I was trying to find the article and I couldn't, that there's that Google has been responding to complaints about families that are using this, uh, that they're not using it for business purposes. They, they, they buy a domain like friarfamily.net or something and uh, you know, use uh, the, the uh, Google legacy uh, G Suite uh, to back that. They might find a way to extend that timeout for those users, but there were a lot of people on Reddit in the last 48 hours. They're complaining pretty aggressively that, uh, you know, they were, they've been running their businesses like this for a long time. I will say that I, I do have a couple of side businesses that I, I do run that utilize, uh, Google Workspace for small business. It's probably the best, uh, I think I'm paying $6 a month per domain uh, for that. It's the best $6 I spend a, a month, to be honest, because it's just such a great industrial set of tools. Well, this is just a sign of Google changing company-wide uh, its approach towards free tools, right? And we've seen this in education as far as the paid tiers for Google Enterprise, you know, Google G Suite, now Google Workspace. And, you know, hey, you want to be able to, you know, record your Google Meets. You want to be able to have admin tools that give you, you know, greater management power. You know, you have to pay. So I think that at some point in the not too distant past, Google made a, a pretty big change and kind of decided to flip that switch. And I think there are people that suspected that for a long time, right? As they gain market share, as they establish themselves, um, as they become uh, a very dominant player and so many people rely on them, they will be able to scale back their provision of free services, which still exist in different forms, but there's there are, the emphasis is on the paid tier. So, yep. And then one other quick note here, uh, a great update from nine, also enough from nine to five Google, Abner Lee reports that Google Docs now allows you to make quick text watermarks in the back of Google Docs. So if you have something that's a draft, for example, and you want to quickly add the word draft in the background, it's literally going to insert watermark the text draft and then it puts a big bold draft in the background and um i have for a very long time now uh several years at least have, have utilized google docs as my primary word processor and i like these little evolutions to the tool there aren't many things left in word uh desktop word that don't appear in some way shape or form in google docs but that's one that i'm glad to see has made it over um uh to the platform did you pull off doing your whole dissertation on Google Docs? 100%. Um, and I, uh, and, and I, I have zero regrets about it too. I did have to, there were some weird formatting things in the end, uh, when I was submitting it to the graduate office, uh, that they, they had some very specific things I had to do. That's also the same version that was ultimately published and printed. Um, and sent off to uh, uh, the the databases for um, dissertations, but yeah, so I had to do that in Word. But uh, the actual document itself, all the reference materials, all the drafts, it was, it was wonderful because I was able to send live copies to members of my committee 
who were able to make live comments. Um, and in some cases, my dissertation chair uh, would be looking at things as I was writing them and was able to leave live comments. And, and I know that's a feature you can do in Word now, but I absolutely loved, absolutely loved using Google Docs to write my dissertation. That's awesome. If you haven't written a blog post about that or an article, that's yeah, really be a good yeah. one. Cause I bet you're, you know, in a very small club right now. Yeah. I, I wrote a bunch of mine, but ended up having to, to go to word and especially with pagination and, and all the, all that stuff. Yep. All right, sir. Well, we may be at the top of the hour. Yeah. Why don't you share your geek of the week? All right. Well, I had five to share, but I'm going to just do one. <laughs> Uh, there is a free ed tech conference this Saturday on January the 29th. And I know about this because I follow NCCE, the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Um, this is a, uh, it's called the CETC Clarksville ed tech conference. Um, and they've just got a free website and you can go in and register and you can, um, you know, get ready to participate virtually. So completely free, uh, just the one day. A good lineup of presenters. Um, you can follow them on Twitter. And man, shout out to to Clarksville schools for doing this. Um, there have been some other schools that have done similar kind of thing, but just really, really awesome to to open this up to anybody who who wants to learn and join. So check yep. that out. And I would also note, since I, I know the NC people pretty well, uh, the keynote speaker for that event is Shannon Davenport, which is the Director of Professional Learning for NCCE. And also shout out to Jamie Wright and Julie Combs, also NCCE Professional Learning Specialists that are helping run that conference, who will also present there. You know where Clarksville is, by the way? Uh, I don't. Okay, I don't either. We'll find out. We'll report, <laughs> I'll report back next week. Yeah, thank you. Um. And uh, let's see, my Geek of the Week is I want to share an article that does something kind of interesting, and there's probably a, a better story that I can do here, but um, I had the opportunity recently to pick up a an expired Chromebook, and what I mean by expired is that it's no longer getting updates, and it was one of the really nice... Um, this is a, a, a Dell 13 Chromebook. I think the, the, the model number is 7310. Um, it's a nice, uh, hardy Chromebook. Uh, it feels solid in the hand. It's got an i5 chip in it. Um, and uh, 32 gigs of RAM. It's not receiving updates anymore, even though it's a perfectly fast Chromebook. And it looks like this was a school Chromebook at one point and was, uh, I'd imagine the reason why it ended up where I found it uh, on eBay was that uh, it probably was bought as part of a lot and uh, then they broke up the lot to be able to sell them. So I bought this for under $50 um, and I want updates on it. And there's a really wonderful article um, over at uh, iFixit, writ written by one of my favorite tech writers, Kevin Purdy. And uh, basically, he walks you through how to take the 2013 Chromebook Pixel and install Cloud Ready on it. And it requires downloading a custom firmware um, and uh, basically uh, 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 taking the, uh, the software that helps uh, communicate between your operating system and the hardware and refurbishes so you can install anything on there you want, including Cloud Ready, also including Linux, if you wish. And so basically I took this, this Chromebook um, and was able to uh, uh, wipe it and put a fresh copy of Cloud Ready on it with, with uh, 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 which is now run by Google, and it, it's a very fast-running Chromebook. And I imagine this this may be uh, uh, just a, a you know a, an experimental, fun, uh, junky one that again I paid less than fifty bucks for. But I thought that was a really interesting project. Mm -hmm. uh, it was fun to do, and I learned some stuff about about uh, 
uh, uh, hacking uh, uh, BIOS and operating systems as well. There you go. Side benefit. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? I am westfryer.com and wfryer on Twitter. How about you? I am at Tech Savvy Teach, and I am also, although I, now I think about it, I haven't updated it recently. Knifer.com is my website. But this here, it's in our Twitter handles or our websites. It is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at 7. Um, um, actually, I knew Clarksville was in Tennessee. I think it's it's outside of... Uh, it's where in Tennessee that I, 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 that I, that I need to look. Um, the... Um, uh, we're a once a week podcast. That is, I can't believe I got distracted there. Um, uh, once a week podcast. Fault. No, that's, a, uh, uh, me too. Uh, we're on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time, 9 p.m. Uh, 8. It's okay, folks. Yeah, 2 a.m. Yeah. UTC is all you yeah, need to know. Yeah, yeah. No, sometime in the middle of the night. I, it's sometime on Wednesday nights. It's sometime in the middle of the night. Jason's at 8 p.m. I'm at 9. So Yeah, there you go. And uh, if you don't, can't listen to us live, although we wish you would, we, we broadcast live over YouTube and Facebook. Uh, if you can't see us live, feel free to find us wherever Finder Progress or Aggregate. You can go to our Facebook or YouTube channels to download or watch old episodes. And you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, to download tiny MP3s. Uh, we hope you have a great week. Stay safe. Stay savvy. We hope to see you next time at the Mushmouth EdTech Situation Room. And sign up for our Substack because we'll email you all the links we didn't talk about. There you go. Good night.